0: Everyone, and welcome to The Gong, the podcast hosting conversations about the earliest stages of startup sales and all the fun stories that come from companies with little cash, no precedents, and lots of guts. My name is Adriel, and I will be your host today for the very first episode of The New Decade. Man, this is going to be something, and I think we've got the perfect guest today because I want to talk about the magic special sauce that I've been seeing from the people who come from the marketing teams at Salesforce. There's something about these people, multiple ones of them who have been on this podcast already. I, Salesforce just puts out killer marketing and people. Uh, I, I think I need to make it my mission to get Mark Benioff on this podcast to see what they are doing, because today's guests, just like the previous ones, like Viv Faga, Um, and Doug Landis, who came from Salesforce. Today's guest is a Salesforce alum who has turned into a master of marketing in her own right. Our guest today is Trisha Gelman. Trisha is a three-time CMO, chief marketing officer for both public companies and venture-backed startups. And Trisha has a wealth of acute knowledge that she's able to talk about in relatable, concise ways. Uh, like many marketers, she's a good storyteller, uh, which makes the stories she tells unfairly better than those of many, many others. Um, not to knock any guests, but man, these marketers know how to talk, and Trisha can tell stories of the best of them. Uh, As with so many conversations, we kind of just got things going right away um, without a formal intro, so keep that in mind, and Trisha really gets into it quick, dropping insight knowledge of things that she learned from Steve Jobs, uh, something about a Salesforce OG squad secret society, ooh, I hope I'm invited one day, and much, much more uh, but as, as often happens, because I think it's so important in early-stage sales, the best part of this conversation was about focus. Uh, Trisha now leads marketing. She has a CMO of Drift, a company with a lot of success, over $100 million uh, raised, and some massive clients. But what it takes to get there is focus. And she gives some really, really fantastic advice about finding similarities between otherwise different kinds of customers, marketing across those. Uh, It's not about going too wide, but not going too narrow either. You need to be able to pick those first customers that are going to get you to the second customers and the second customers that will get you to the third customers. But you need to know that you're not going to be able to make a leap from zero to five immediately it takes steps in between Uh, i learned a lot from trisha there's a lot that i agreed with her on and a lot i want to hear more about so i hope that you please enjoy my conversation and this very first episode of 2020 and the roaring 20s here we go please enjoy trisha (laughs) gelman
1: So then Salesforce had this thing called the App Exchange, because Mark Benioff, CEO of Salesforce, was friends and had done some work with Apple and met Steve Jobs. And Steve Jobs told him, if you could make your product a platform with things that are built on top of it, then that's like money. It becomes super sticky. And so they built the App Exchange, which allows people to plug into Salesforce architecture.
0: And that was just... uh Steve helping Mark. Yeah. Just, just a couple buddies grabbing a beer and talking yeah. about how to build trillion-dollar companies. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mark
1: always references back to Steve. Like, that was one of the best pieces of advice I ever had.
0: Do you have people like that in your life? People you go to looking for advice?
1: Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, lots of old Salesforce people. <laughs> um, some people from um, Adobe, too.
0: What is it about the culture of Salesforce that makes you all so tight knit i'm not sure there's other companies i mean googlers love google but like yeah. the salesforce people i've met it's like you guys were all in the same frat like you all love yeah. each other and trust each other and
1: i think in i think actually probably we'll go back to like those years i think in the like 07 to 11 time frame was like salesforce was one product it was starting to become two products it was moving from just sort of CRM sales use cases to the app exchange, like being able to tie marketing into sales, et cetera. Um, And it was starting to get that true traction where the concept of SaaS was actually taking off. And so I think everyone was really passionate about what we were doing and how we were kind of changing the world with the cloud. Right, like we had the little sassy, we went and did protests together, like all these different sort of guerrilla-ish marketing activities, which then had like very ups and downs. But that's what I loved about Salesforce was it didn't matter what team you were on. If there was a great idea that was going to solve a problem or Mark said, hey guys, like how can we do this? Everyone would just drop what they were doing and then do it together it was kind of we're all in this to make this company overall successful versus like I'm in this division, you're in that division, whatever, which is what I would say what happens a lot at Salesforce now that it's 40,000 people.
0: Was there something you think specific that Mark or other people in leadership did to make sure that you guys were all much more communal like that?
1: I think Mark's whole thing was about always spreading idea generation across the company. In a little bit of a positive way, a like Mark loves to give the same idea to three different teams to compete internally to win the idea, which in some ways is a little bit toxic, but it's also good because you get a lot of idea generation and you get much broader input on like ways to solve the challenge.
0: Salesforce, there's like mythology around Salesforce's guerrilla tactics in the early days. Can you tell one of those stories or like put us in that environment?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I think, like, before I got there, I think they did more than when I was there, but we definitely still did, like, no software, the whole, I mean, we had software in the cloud, but we created this it was like idea. It's like the death of software, the like, billboards software. were taken yeah, out, yeah, totally, like, yeah. on, on Highway 1. <laughs> and so then, um, at the time, Dreamforce was pretty small, which is hard to imagine now, but it was really small, and um, Oracle Open World was already pretty big. And so we wanted to capitalize on the Oracle Open World press, um, knowing that like we were a super small fry compared to them. But what we we're trying to do was sort of um, create and debunk what they were doing for the fact that that was like the old world. We're creating this whole new category, and so Mark said, you know, task is like how do we create PR coverage for Salesforce? No new product announcement, nothing, but like. During o- o- Oracle Open World, so then everyone got together. We had this idea: well, we could do protests because if software is dead, then we can basically protest like death of software, and that like this is a conference for software, and <laughs> why are you here?
0: So you just walked around with picket
1: signs. Picket signs, like outside the conference, and then we actually must have launched something because like we actually had a press conference. So at the St. Regis, across the street from Moscone, we had. Um, a conference that we did, like a one, like a couple hour thing, and then we had the picket line out front, and so then the media was like, oh my god, we've never seen this before, like what is this gorilla company doing? They're so small, like how could they think they're going to take down Oracle? And they, there was a lot of coverage around that, like with this controversy, what's happening, why does Salesforce think that they can like play against Oracle, which is exactly the message and dialogue we're trying to create. And then we had like a little mini conference of like a hundred people or less in the St. Regis. And we got like, ton, like more coverage than like Oracle got on the day.
0: You think you got that coverage for that, the, the picket signs and, and the, or, or the product launch? Was it like a bunch of crazy people storm outside St. Regis?
1: Yeah, I don't <laughs> think we had a product launch. It was more, we just had like a, a education session like a little mini conference, you know? But we weren't presenting at Oracle Open World. We didn't pay to sponsor it, whatever. We're just kind of like jumping on top of what they were doing. And no, we got a lot of coverage from the picket lines, like pictures of like the picket fence, you know, with the signs in in the papers.
0: There's a few, I mean, the other famous example in tech of smaller company picks a bad guy, calls them evil is Apple and IBM, right? When Apple took out a New York Times ad maybe and then talked about IBM and how the end of PCs are yep. are happening traditionally, and Macs taking over. And yeah, like picked out this really really evil guy. Do you think that's Yeah, I think creating
1: like a competition is a good tactic for marketing.
0: Yeah, do right. You, you, you want to have
1: like some. There's, I mean, there's two schools of thought. One is you can take the high road and say like, oh, we've created something so different, like we don't have any competitors. That's always great when you meet with analysts in the press and things like that, right? Because like, it's kind of like a non-answer. But the other is if you say, like, oh, yes, we have this battle because people love underdog. You know, it's always that way. It doesn't matter if it's sports or, you know, companies and their software, whatever. Uh, people love to see what's happening with underdog. And so you end up, I think, generating a lot of coverage through that. But you have to have yourself really buttoned up if you're going to go head to head.
0: Yeah, tell me buttoned up, because yeah, if you're a small startup, you might want to you might read the story and say, "Oh, cool, Salesforce stormed outside the St. Regis with picket signs." But like, if you're three people and a dog, you're not going to be doing that to quite the extent. What do you mean buttoned up? Like, well, how do you need to? How I do think you think- just have
1: to be prepared. One, you have to have solid messaging, right? So if you're going to say, "Oh, we are doing X against Y," the big sort of competitor you have to be really clear like what is the message why does it matter to people like if you just say something useless no one's going to care that you're now making this comparison and then you also have to be consistent that you don't just do it once but you do it ongoing so like salesforce is doing these picket signs like they also had a logo that had like a you know red with no software like that was their like actual company logo so it was like ingrained in everything that was being done at the time it wasn't
0: just a quick publicity stunt it was part of the dna of like the whole plan
1: yeah so i would say that's more buttoned up than just sort of like okay let's do a one-off
0: have you have you taken that to future companies like have you a have you found a bad guy when you were working for uh drift or or for checker
1: not yet. Like, I think we, at Drift, we have a couple of competitors that maybe we kind of, like, go at a little bit. Um, and before I got here, they did a picket line um, at some uh, companies.
0: I took a page right out of that yeah, book. Yeah, they <laughs> took a page out of the
1: Salesforce book. But um, in general, I've more taken the high road of, you know, we're doing something different. And, like, this you should come in this other place because the old way is, like, a bad way, which is also what we do um, at Drift and what we did at Checker.
0: And that was like, was that a conversation that you had with somebody and said, well, here's our options, which one should we take? Or was it a natural evolution of what you came into here?
1: Um, oh, here, um, here, I mean, they started Drift with the idea that the way that people buy today is broken especially in B2B SaaS software. And there needed to be a new way of buying, which was through conversations. And so they decided that it was a whole new category. And so the marketing at Drift has historically been very brand and content first in creating the conversational marketing category. And um, Because
0: the old way of buying is what? You just see a page and a couple prices and you click the one you want and...
1: Yeah, so the old way of B2B buying is that you go to a website On the website, you find a page about something that's interesting to you. And then very quickly after, you end up on a form. And then you fill in the form. And the expectation is that somebody's going to probably call you back. Or you're going to get a lot of emails. Response rate to the emails is going to be super low. Because you didn't ever ask anyone to send you email, really. But
0: you downloaded the free report. (laughs) Yeah,
1: whatever it was. um, The phone calls, I mean, one in ten calls actually get make a connection. So, a lot of the calls aren't going to be connected, especially today's day and age. Most people's numbers are their cell phone. They don't have another phone. And when people call them that aren't in their address book, they don't even answer. So, that's only getting worse. Um, And so, the likelihood of the person on your site who's interested in potentially what you sell actually buying just like diminishes as you go through these steps. And That's the sort of buying cycle we put people on in traditional B2B. But in the rest of the world, people have evolved. They're on their mobile phones. They're on, like, social. They say, like, Google, I want to find this and that. And, like, less than a second, they find it. They, like, go and buy something in Amazon. There's no friction in what's happening. And they're off and they're done. So, like, the world today in consumer is, like, now. I want this stuff now. And, yeah, in B2B, it's very... Friction. I
0: mean, there's only certain. Le- I mean, that said, when I'm a consumer, if I want to buy something as cheap as a new set of batteries, which for eight bucks, or even a laptop for a thousand, it's my money, right? I just yeah. I have a thousand dollars. I want to go spend a thousand dollars. I'll go do it. Right. If I'm buying B two B software, it's not my money. It's my manager's money or my company's yeah, money yeah. or maybe I have some money. So
1: so there's more consideration that still happens in a B two B buying cycle, but um, I mean, the data shows. For over five years, the data has shown that at this point, people have so much access to information that like 60% almost of the buying cycle is complete by the time someone comes to your website.
0: Meaning they've educated themselves. They've educated themselves.
1: So like way back 10, 20 years ago, people were reliant on talking to salespeople to learn about a solution. But today with review sites, with like all other things that are going on on the internet, with the ability to connect to your peers, to like learn from other people, word of mouth, et cetera. Um, the education for people making their decisions is much further down the path when the buyer comes to you as a salesperson. And so then the question is, like what does this person already know? What misinformation do they have? Like how do you kind of like work them back into the conversation you wanna have? So if you have the ability to connect to people sooner, then you can actually influence the sale faster. And um, if you take away the forms, then you also have the ability to connect higher up in the buying cycle, which then you're saying it's not your money. So if you're tasked with buying something, but your boss is like, oh, I heard about Drift because you were talking about it. I'm just like on the Sunday gonna like research this thing. If you don't have to fill out a form, then you might actually learn about it yourself, um, which basically brings like the decision makers into the cycle sooner. So in the beginning of Drift, that was the whole point is how do we actually break this broken cycle? where the buying has too much friction. And then the- I know
0: you didn't join uh, on day one, but do you remember kind of their very first MVP or do you know the story of, of the first product that they came to market with hoping to change something as big as what they're hoping to change?
1: I don't know. I mean, okay, I do know that when um, David and Elias left HubSpot to create the company, they thought they were gonna do some sort of software that was gonna help with conversations in HR. And then they identified like the needs of HR buyer and they kind of thought more of like, what is it that we're trying to build? And they found that the HR buyer does not have budget, often doesn't have a direct seat at the executive staff table. And they decided it was a bad idea to have a company around that. And so through their experience in the past and also at HubSpot, they realized that the buying cycle which has about CRM and things like that is a little bit broken. And so they saw that they could start to apply their idea to marketing.
0: And now as it's evolved, one of the things I always love understanding a little better is where the focus of a startup lies, because you might say, we're changing the bias cycle for everybody. But if you're going after every company that ever sells on B2B, yeah. my guess is you're in over your heads. So how do you think about who to start with and how to break that down into uh, whether it's personas or groups. Yeah, it was really interesting after.
1: that you asked this cuz it's kind of why I'm now here at Drift. So, initially, was Initially
0: every CEO says, "Oh, our market is everybody," you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. I, so,
1: um, I think initially Drift was, "Hey, we're changing the world. We're creating this new category called conversational marketing." Conversational marketing is great for anyone in a B2B sales cycle and like anyone who sees this friction of trying to actually connect to the people who want to buy and then bringing them through to close a sale. And then now, in the past year, um, the conversational marketing is a category. It's a category since twenty eighteen established and recognized by Gartner and Forrester, and so you know, in two to three years, they established a the whole category and established Drift as a leader of the category, but through their selling motion and growing the sales team, they've seen that being so broad is probably not as efficient and effective. And if they wanna maintain leadership, we need to make sure that we continue to be realistic about what size pond we're swimming in. And so now that I am here, I'm trying to build out the product marketing function so that we can uh, better understand the personas, understand how the personas fit into the buying cycle, understand who's an influencer versus a decision maker, um, and really then um, refine that uh, ICP. So I don't know the customer profile, okay. <laughs> um, and um, so identify like who is the ideal customer profile for what we're selling today, where we have like the least friction for selling. We may be relevant to XYZ b Y, Z, B2B. And let but them find
0: you. Let like them find w- us, but find in terms you. of like
1: sales outbounding and our like overall marketing motion, if we can get a little bit more narrow, we can see more efficiency and productivity in our marketing dollar return in the sales team effort and their productivity, et cetera. Um, and actually this is something that I did at Checker too. So Checker was kind of saying, hey, like we have this great solution. Like, let's just kind of go. And when I came in there, I was like, okay, this is not working because it's too broad. Like, we're never going to win if we're just something to everyone. And so what I did was I um, created a unified go-to-market. So product, sales, service, and marketing identifying like who are we going after that means what product are we building and what features do we prioritize um, where do we actually spend our marketing dollars what accounts do we have sales outbound and spend time on like all of that stuff and that's what we're doing at um, drift right now
0: and my experience if you tell an executive that their company is too broad or going after too many people he he or she will tell you that you just don't understand you, you don't you don't get the vision or you don't get what's going on what's the resistance that you've met in the past here with Checker or anyone else where you come in and they're like, look at what we've built. Everybody wants to be our customer. And you're like, ah, I'm not so sure about that. Maybe we should go after certain groups first and build them better. I think
1: it's different at Checker. Checker actually um, had some pretty big feature gaps that were necessary to go into different verticals just because it's a very – a Constricted environment with a lot check of like, was like HR background checks. HR background, and background and that's checks. Probably so there's a lot of like legal, legal like stuff, if yeah. you're in finance, if you're in this, if you're in that. So you have to build out really rich, deep features, different for different verticals. And so it's really important that we streamline and say, hey, like. Stop calling finance. We're not going to have the features required for finance compliance for X number of years. And we're always just going to end up like, oh, that's nice, but we'll talk to you in three years. So f- from that perspective, I think it was very easy to go into a very specific target audience and be more targeted as a team. Because you get um, to say,
0: we're background checks for delivery drivers or for finance people. and
1: Exactly. Uh, and, yeah. like, and then... Yeah. And then we also saw that if we took our messaging by vertical, we could actually be much more relevant to people, which today people want to feel more personalized. So that was really good. Um, at Drift, I do think that the product still works for any B2B sales motion. The question is just like, where do you put the effort? Um, and so, um, I think we have a lot of data to show that we have like really strong, um, repeatability in certain areas. And so if we wanna be like a fast growing startup that really delivers results and continues that growth after four, almost five years of being in market, it makes sense for us to cast a really broad uh, brand message like we did from the beginning, continue to do that. But at the same time, take like the go to market motion where there's a lot of effort and and, uh, money and target that to just see the return. And then we can pick off The groups instead of like just doing everything for everyone
0: what do you think are some of the biggest moments of resistance either that you've faced with with coming after like that from executive teams or that you know younger startups or people building their startups for the first time or with these big broad visions why do they not want to go narrow
1: I mean, I think the biggest challenge is when you start, you may think you have minimal viable product for X, but the fact of the matter is that there's always, no matter what you do, there's always a bunch of people that use your product in a way that you didn't imagine. And so I think in the beginning, like cutting that off, it kind of stymies like innovation and sort of direction. Because you want to watch what other people do. You want to watch what other people do because you're like, oh, I didn't think about that. But, like, look at how much value my product is offering to those people. Maybe we should go in that direction or maybe we should enhance that feature set because it would be better, you know, to add for everyone or whatever. There's a lot of sort of learning and growing with your initial customers and sort of as you grow the company. Um, You know, Drift is, like, over 300 people now. And so I think when you get to that level... um, you start to see like more scale, and it becomes important that you create repeatability across the various people in the company too, because if everybody's kind of servicing like a long tail group, um, it becomes very distracting when you get, I would, um, like my experience would say like over 150 to 200 people, it becomes distracting if everybody's doing lots of different things, um, which starts to um, create issues within your company's growth.
0: Yeah, it's at 200 it might be distracting, but at 10, it's
1: uh, it's great. It's like every. Yeah. <laughs> at 10 or like even 50. Everyone's in one room and everyone's sharing like the amount. Someone of has an idea to throw it out. That, you can yeah. talk about it. Talk about it. Like there's no issues like, you know, Drift. We have like three, four offices now, different locations, different time. So every zones, office just off
0: and starts doing their own thing. After two years, you've got a bunch of icebergs floating exactly. around.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And so I think that's where it becomes possible to kind of say, like, okay, where do we see across all this data that we're having, like, high repeatability, you know, less friction, ability to kind of go and grow. Um, And then you're able to capitalize in that way.
0: Yeah. How did you, at Checker, you mentioned that you guys kind of picked a vertical of some sort. And then as you grow, you can say, hey, we crushed it with finance. Let's move on and do background Mm -hmm. checks for legal. How does that switch happen? Because all of a sudden you might – Change your lingo. You're changing the conferences you're going. You're changing the blog posts you're writing. You're changing a lot of different things. Can you tell kind of that story of how you switch from one?
1: Yeah. So um, so of at, so Checker I think is super unique. I mean, it's actually just a really unique company. When I tell people about it, they're like, "Holy cow, that's like very unique." But um, the co-founders identified a true need in the market, which was very well timed for. Um, sort of individual success with no competition. And so um, so what they identified was that the growing app-based gig economy did not have a good way to get background checks. Like the way background checks were done in the past took like a month, maybe longer, and here you have Uber trying to sign up drivers every single day, every minute. So the two things just didn't align. So they had their first product, um, they tested it, they also came from that world, they were engineers in that world. And um, so they had their first product. They tested it with some companies that were their friends and their third customer was Uber. And so then they had this huge hockey stick of success because Uber was growing over 90% a year. Then like they were growing with Uber, et cetera. And so then also like every app sharing economy company wants to be like Uber. So all of a sudden they just have like this like huge amount of momentum that didn't really have to invest in building a brand, creating a category, doing any of these things because they just had this momentum from the people who were creating the category overall of like the gig economy and they were floating in that and enabling that. So then they said okay, like we've great market fit. <laughs> Clearly there's a need to change this industry, but if we really wanna go after the TAM, we have to think about how do we sell to people outside of the gig economy. So it's really a question of how do we continue to grow the business outside of a single vertical and because they have been so successful in one vertical, they thought how do we identify another vertical that has similar characteristics and like essentially cross the chasm into enterprise software. And so that's what they did and it was more like with the resources we have, how much can we do because like, they didn't want to, like, all of a sudden just start doing some, like, massive enterprise, any company in the world, we can help you. And they didn't have the features set for it either. So that's sort of how uh, Checker got to the verticalized approach. Um, and then, like, in my second year there, we identified that the verticals we were going after had enough consistency across them that we could actually do horizontal campaigns with, like, the same value message, even though like the industry itself, when we did industry specific back to the personalization, it was, you know, received really well, but there was an opportunity to do more horizontal messaging. Can
0: you be specific about that? So maybe what they were and what unique, what qualities they had across the board?
1: So, um, so checker identified that they were experts in delivering background checks for high velocity hiring which is what you need when you're doing thousands of people a day for Uber and Grubhub and everybody else. And so they went and looked at where in other parts of the world are there high, is there high-velocity hiring, and they identified that there's a lot of jobs like call centers, like retail, etc., where the churn on workers is over 50%. Which is hard to believe, but that's the case. So you hire somebody, and like every month, 50% of people are gone.
0: Yeah, I work in delivery. It's about the same thing. Yeah, yeah.
1: and so, um, so anyway, so they identified outside of gig economy, like what places? So you had call centers, you had staffing agencies, you had um, retail, um, warehousing, different things like that, Um, and then identified what are the features that are needed, like which groups need drug testing, which wasn't something that the drivers needed, et cetera, et cetera, Um, and so then looked at, like, what are those features? So in staffing, it was very similar to gig economy because you're supplying people again as the main thing you're doing, um, and there's a lot of turnover, so that was good. Then we looked at retail. You have all these people. You have big spikes, the other place where... Um, the old way of doing background checks falls apart is it's super manual. So when you have like holiday time and you need to ramp up like 4x the number of people, uh, it's super difficult to do that. So retail was yeah, good. Yeah, if you wait
0: a month, you just miss Thanksgiving,
1: so. Totally. Yeah. So um, so these things, we identified these characteristics. So then as we started to sell in, we started to see that well, like almost always we're talking to the head of talent. So the VP of talent is a person who is responsible for putting people butts in seats. And so if the person is responsible for that, then in some way, shape or form, they either decide or influence who buys background checks. And so then with a well, the VP of talent basically exists in every company. So we can start doing campaigns to VP of talent and there might be specific trade shows where the VP of talent hang out. Um, We also know that Um, those people are working with different tools like greenhouse or workday or whatever. So if we um, integrate into those products and then get into that ecosystem, we can start to like grow and sort of reduce the friction of like how we go through the buying cycle. So we went to all the staffing shows. We went to the retail shows, but then we also went to the like partnerships and the places where the VP of talent So you built your
0: entire strategy around where do we find VPs of talent to Mm -hmm. work in, these three industries exactly and how do we reach them better how do we talk to them more how do they hear of us faster
1: exactly and then use that as the acquisition strategy as well as the brand strategy we also did brand awareness tracking which is like a big company tactic but it was we were wanting to see like how much traction are we making in the industries and there was i didn't know of another way to do it we could do it through just share what voice. is it
0: how, how does that work i haven't heard of it um, so Brand we, awareness tracking. Said.
1: Yeah, so you can hire these um, companies, and what they do is they just basically do polling and research across industries and titles, and then they have a general curve where you can have um, you have aided, which is hey, um, in the category of CRM, do you know of Salesforce, HubSpot, so and so, so and so, or you can have unaided. You just say to the person. Um, tell me the name of four CRM companies. So that's like you can kind of see if it's unaided. Like oh, so those so are all the random
0: quizzes they're making me take when I read the Wall Street Journal or something. They're like, yeah, before probably. you read the next article. Yeah. Uh, humble brag, I read the journal. <laughs> <laughs> that's but, what they're making me do, I see. Yeah, so
1: they're just categorizing sort of like what's happening. Then they use that data back to their advertisers to say like, yeah, this is good because 20% of our people know what CRM is or is not, et etc., um, but you can pay them to do it for you, and then they'll go out and they'll say, okay, unaided, like 5% of people mentioned you, right? Because that's the super hardest thing is to have unaided awareness. You're like, Kleenex is yeah. like the most, right? Like, what do you use to blow your nose? Oh, Kleenex, okay, yeah. that's the highest awareness you how could ever have. How do you copy have. paper Uses Kleenex. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so that would be unaided. Then you have aided, we have a list, and so if you pay them, you could put like a list of your competitors or even people that are ancillary so you can see like how confused is the market um and then you can also evaluate like what percentage of people who know the category are not just know you through aided awareness but also are like thinking of you through consideration so that's sort of the levels of um, awareness so if you and have people so then people, you might
0: take that information and say hey turns out like what would you do if you say hey turns out like when people think uh, this category, they're thinking of our competitor. What would be your next move?
1: Yeah, then you can do like competitive ad buying in an SEM. You can say like, oh, this is really important because every time somebody thinks of conversational marketing, they think of our competitor. So like, let's make sure that we do SEM ad buying for uh, what the category, conversational marketing plus, you know, the other. Um, And you know, like that's what people are associating with. That's where you want to kind of get in front of the audience
0: yeah one of the things that also comes to mind is whenever you decide who this individual or this group that you're targeting is and you figure out what it is they do you got to figure out the medium that you're going to communicate exactly with them, whether they're podcast listeners or blog readers or just investing in sending salespeople out to trade shows how do you think about the benefits the pros and cons between different social media venues or writing uh
1: yeah, so this goes back as well to your question earlier around um, growing a business. So I think in the beginning you kind of do everything as much as you can afford to do or like gorilla do it like with one person who's doing just everything they can. And then I think you get to a point where you identify, hey, consistently the VP of talent is a person who's buying my solution or the VP of demand for in our case for, or whatever, CMO. And, um, and then you say, okay, what do we know about this person? and you can then do research or just buy research that says like, okay, the average CMO goes to these trade shows, spends tons of time on LinkedIn, et cetera, et cetera. You can use that and you can just one time buy that in order to figure out a little bit of like where to get started. Um, Then I think as a CMO, it's always important to have at a minimum 10%, if not more of your budget in sort of experimentation. And like when you say, oh, I need to deliver X number of leads to sales, then that's, you have to figure out the tactics that are really gonna do that. But then they're always gonna probably dry up. So you need to be testing other things so that you always have a way to kind of fuel that like new source of leads um, and engagement. And so that's also I think what you do with like, okay, let's see if our audience is like reacting in Facebook. Oh, we don't get anything. Like we're not getting a lot of leads. We're not getting a lot of engagement. Okay, like then we just turn that off.
0: How experimental is your experimentation? I mean, are you guys at Drift posting on TikTok? Uh, how, what, what's the most experimental things you guys like to play around with?
1: I think that we, like, we definitely like to do podcasts. Um, Actually, we do a ton of podcasts and we do a ton of our own content, Um, and then like placing that we place it out in like lots of different places like syndicated content sources versus social, different social platforms, et cetera. Um, And so I think that's generally where we are. Um, We also have started um, sponsoring podcasts, right, like advertising in podcasts versus our own. So that's for us experimental because we've done so much and gathered so much audience with our own podcast. Have you seen
0: success in that? My, My issue that I find most podcast advertisements is that you know that they're gonna be 30, 60, or 120 seconds long and the Apple Podcast app lets you skip past 30 second increments. Yeah, yeah. So it's the easiest thing to skip past them. The, there's only one podcast that I actually listen to the advertisements on, and that's Masters of Scale.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, but the Reed Hoffman one, because I think there's stories within the podcast, within the advertisement. So the content
1: is relevant. The in content, the ads.
0: and they tell them in the same style that they tell yeah. the story of the podcast.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. So
0: uh, but how have you guys found. Uh, we, just we just doing started doing it.
1: Yeah. So I think, I mean, there's a lot of cases where the audience is the right audience, but like to your point, like finding something that actually delivers a return is different. But even if you catch like the first two seconds of the Mm -hmm. 30 second and you're like, oh, I need to go past this. If you hear drift, Mm -hmm. then it might be worth it because you're just getting like that, like reminder. I think successful marketing is about hitting people like somewhere between three and seven times before they're gonna do anything. So even if you just get that mention and then it like when they see an ad somewhere else, then it makes it relevant.
0: Yeah, figuring out, it also depends on, you know, if we say the medium is the message, is almost like podcasters have influ- legitimate influencers mm-hmm. within podcasting now. If Tim Ferriss has a new advertisement, I'm like, oh, well, I wonder what he's been playing around oh, with. Oh, like, totally. Or if Kara Swisher says something on her podcast, yeah. I'm like, I might not listen to the whole thing. I'm definitely never going to listen to it a second time, but I'll listen to the ad maybe half of it the very first time I hear it's a new ad.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, like, you're hitting on the point that, it's just harder and harder as a marketer to help drive business. And I think that's what we're trying to do at Drift is create a new platform for people where it's not about like an interruption in what they're doing, but it's about driving a conversation. And so, So I think, like, driving that conversation and being relevant, you know, what you're highlighting about the podcast is that if somebody's 100% relevant telling a story in the way that the blog is being told, then it's, like, useful content. And I think today people have less patience. And so if you can't have a personalized experience and have it be relevant, then it's like you're wasting people's time. You're almost building a negative brand.
0: Ooh, a negative brand. You know, like like if you're the interrupter all the
1: time, then I'm trying to think of a brand that's like that, but there are brands where you're like, oh my God, them again. Like, I don't want to see those ads. And um, and that is like a detraction from your brand because people have a negative association to it. So it's important as a marketer to respect people's time and respect like where they are in terms of what you're going to do there.
0: Uh, listen, Trisha, we did this interesting thing where I didn't really even go through any of my questions that I had prepared <laughs> today, uh, because this has been a blast. Um, so I want to move on to a fire round little okay. segment here. Can you believe it? The hour just flown really? by. Yeah.
1: Wow. Okay. Here we are
0: at top of the hour. Um, so we're gonna do a little fire round question. Okay. I'll ask them quickly, but you can take your sweet time answering them if okay. you want. Do you have any favorite sales or marketing books that have meant a lot to you? Oh,
1: that's a tough question. Um, I think, like, the like old classics, like Good to Great, are really good. Like, I go back to those a lot. I mean, Crossing the Chasm,
0: You mentioned uh, you had a Crossing the Chasm yeah. line earlier. I love that book. Crossing
1: the Chasm yeah. is great. Um, Clay Christensen and the Innovator's Dilemma. Mm-hmm. It's awesome for early-stage mm-hmm. startups. I'm really thinking, like, what am I doing versus what is someone going to do to me? Um, what other books? I mean, just, like, I think you can apply it to work, but... Um, it's The Art of Not Giving
0: a... Uh, by Mark Manson? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Like, that book is so valuable because in early-stage companies, there's always too many things to do and really identifying, like, what are you doing and what do you care? Is it about what everyone thinks of you? Is it not? Like, what's the influence of it?
0: Yeah, The the Art of Not Giving a Fuck, we can swear in the podcast, yeah, okay. f- f- PG-13 here. But that, that book is interesting. I actually just the other day accidentally turned it on again on my Audible. I yeah. listened to it maybe a year or two ago. And... It's one of the books that I think was titled too well, Mm -hmm. because almost from the title, you can sort of figure out what 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 he's going to talk about the entire time, but it's still worth a listen.
1: Yeah. It's good for kind of questioning yourself on like, what are my motivations and what do I care about? And I think that's important in early stage startup because... You have so many different stakeholders that are like, product wants this, and sales wants that, and marketing wants that, and there's just a lot to trade off. So really identifying what matters to you and also what you should just not care about because there's too many things to get done is super useful.
0: All right, next question. Yeah. Uh, Do you have a favorite advertisement or ad campaign that you've seen before? Favorite
1: advertisement that I've seen...
0: This could be a Super Bowl ad. It could be just a very clever.
1: I'll tell you the worst ad that I've Ooh, ever telling. seen. Love it. Okay, so at Salesforce, we decided we were going to take out an ad in the Super Bowl, and everyone was so excited because they thought we are like literally like going into mainstream. We're going to be so excited, and we hired Will I Am from the Black Eyed Peas to help us direct this ad. We made it all about the new TV series that they were going to come out with called The Baby Peas. The Baby Peas trailer, if you can ever find it anywhere, was basically like a lot of swearing in a cartoon that was about adult topics, but supposed to be for kids. So like just totally never went anywhere. And the whole ad was the Baby Peas that no one knew. And then it had, like, when Chatter was first launched, it had this, like, big teeth, you know, like you see at the dentist that walk along. (laughs) It was so embarrassing, and everybody at Salesforce was excited that we're going to have this ad, and then everyone at Salesforce sat and watched the Super Bowl ad and just like cringed and wanted to like disappear into the if, fabric wherever if, they were if
0: I remember the story right it was a massive deal because the, the Super Bowl that year had already sold out of ad space so Will I am pulled some strings yeah. got y'all guys and in the there and the Black
1: Eyed Peas were singing the Black Eyed Peas so the ad went straight into it them being on stage and it went straight into
0: it so it was it, like it like, had rhyme. all these
1: elements Didn't of it bo- being it? it might have
0: bookended even I, I don't remember you yeah, know it bookended book right it went
1: in and then like the end of the show um, the Black Eyed Peas handed it back to the Baby They there was, like a
0: point or something it was very contrived it was so
1: contrived but like in a way that you would just think would like rocket ship your brand Mm. but the ad itself was so bad it was just this huge embarrassment it was oh it was just not relevant to the audience like there was just (laughs) no element of like no it was just bad I
0: love that um thank you for sharing (laughs) I forgot about that story uh is there um uh, tell me about an early marketing or sales mentor of yours and what you learned from them
1: Yeah, so um, when I was at Adobe, I worked with a woman named Susan Prescott, who now does product at Apple, and she, we were organized by, um, we were, at that point, we were organized into, like, creative, and then there was an enterprise group, so it was, like, all Creative Suite, all Photoshop Illustrator, all these products. And um, the engineering team had decided that PageMaker was like a dud of a product. It wasn't really going to win in the creative market like Photoshop and Illustrator. And so they needed a new product to compete with a, comp- a competitor named Cork Express that owned 95% of the market. And so um, the team invested in this product called InDesign. And in the initial launch of the product, it just like, did not do well at all they kind of missed the mark in terms of what the customer needed to do with the product. From a usability standpoint, from like the way the product looked, it was amazing, but in the like, why would I use this product with the output I need to get? It just totally fell flat. And Susan went to the board, they were gonna cut the product. They're like, we've put five years into development of this product, a year and a half into marketing it and selling it, and it's like, just not going anywhere. And Susan felt like the challenges ahead were things we could overcome and that we were already on the path to get there. And she went to the board and the executive team and basically said, like, you're making a mistake if you kill this product. Like, it could have major negative impact for the company because we need this product as sort of a component of the rest of the workflow of our target audience. And if we are only reliant on Photoshop and Illustrator, like, we're gonna tap out. Um, But she basically put her career on the line because she believed it was the right thing to do. Um, And so that was like a big lesson to me. It's like you don't want to do that all the time. But if you really believe in something, like actually going out there and fighting for it is often worth it.
0: Yeah, I love that story. Go, Susan. Yeah. Uh, Is there a company today or yonder, way back when, that you would have loved to be a CMO for? And what would you have done as their CMO?
1: Um,
0: And you go back to olden days if you want.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, like, I just, when you say that, I think of, like, major B2C brands. Um, I mean, I think, like, all the stuff that Nike's ever done, like, to be, like, pre-just-do-it and to be a part of creating that brand and really that, like, um, emotional connection that they've been able to develop would have been pretty cool. Yeah.
0: Have you read Shoe Dog? No. Oh, so Phil Knight, the CEO yeah, of, yeah. of uh, Nike, wrote his biography maybe two or three years ago.
1: Oh, I'll Great have to check book. It and out. talked
0: a lot about that marketing campaign and everything that they did with Jordan and, yeah. and all the athletes. Yeah, Pretty I good. think that
1: that's just, it's really, I mean, even to this day, like how they have such a strong brand. Um, and to back to like the Susan comment, like they're standing up for things they believe in and, you know, can be controversial, but yeah. it kind of wraps in a lot of the things we have talked about.
0: Yeah, I love it. Uh, one of the final questions here. Can you sell me this pen?
1: Can I sell you this pen?
0: Or market it for me?
1: Um, this is like an interview question. Uh, Okay. It's so I'm gonna start like I just met you. Ah, here we go. Okay. So, um, it's really nice to meet you. Um, I understand that you, you know, have very successful business, but I'm just wondering like how often are you communicating with people outside of your company versus, um, in your company?
0: Uh, I'd say probably 70% of my communication goes external.
1: And, um, and is that like, you know, in what means do you communicate with people, just email or phone calls or, like, do you send packages? What happens? I
0: definitely do a lot of both. So email, but as much as uh, much as possible, I try to be really personal with them.
1: Okay. So um, I have this tool. Uh, it's a very smooth uh, drawing black pen. And um, you know, I think probably in your communications, you have like different tiers of communications, right? Like email. It's for like I've people who bother you, like not so interesting. Um, Just everybody gets that. And then you have like thank you cards that you write by hand. Maybe you have like packages you send to people, like nice t-shirts or other things, like swag from your company, but all with personalized message. This black pen that I have, it will actually help you stand out in those communications that you're making, which is like your highest return communications.
0: Man, I'll take two. That's, that's good. I appreciate it. Uh, Trisha, this has been a ton of fun. Where can folks uh, read more about your work, uh, reach out if they can, learn more about what you're doing?
1: Yeah, I think the best place is LinkedIn, Trisha Gelman on um, LinkedIn. Um, and I have a bunch of content up there. I won't put a plug for it, but um, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, I accept a lot of uh, connection requests. And then I'm also posting about marketing and sales activity all the time there.
0: Awesome. Well have a very happy holiday. Thank you. And thank you very much. No problem. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Trisha Gelman. If you want to learn more about Trisha, you can check her out on LinkedIn at LinkedIn.com slash in slash gelman sf marketing. Or visit drift.com to see Trisha's magic at work. And plus, they're hiring. If you liked what you heard today, leave us a review and a rating or find me all over the interwebs at alubarsky2. Have a fantastic 2020. And until next time, happy selling.